podcast one production. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. This is a Health Hacker interview. We find out from inspiring people how they've hacked their lives and then pass the knowledge on to you. We call it Hacking the Hackers. And in this episode, we speak to Eloise Wellings from the Love Mercy Foundation and a proper athlete, Adam. Like we get fit people in here. But when Eloise walked in, I was like, oh my God, this is the fittest person I've seen in my life. Like, how do you get so fit? So really? I'm so excited to have you on. It's so I'm nice to have you here. I'm seven months pregnant. I'm not, I'm not that and fit right now. And that's what even more impressive, right? I don't know how you do it. We've got so many questions for you about your routine and how you get it all done, plus Great. while being pregnant. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I was really excited to have uh, Eloise on because, um, you know, Yes, she's an athlete, but the thing that I admire about her is her resilience as a person, her ability to overcome obstacles, setbacks. And I think anybody listening to today's podcast will draw so much inspiration from her story because, um, you know, we'll we'll dive into it in a minute. But, um, you know, she suffered 11 stress fractures, qualified for the Olympics 12 years prior to actually going to her first Olympics. And as a former professional athlete, um, I'm so glad I'm not an athlete anymore because of the mental highs and lows. And how did you do it? Like, honestly, thanks for being here. How did you endure that suffering and that roller coaster and, and get to an Olympics finally after that setback? Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Like, there was definitely like the lowest of lows missing each Olympics was, was devastating. And you, I think at the time you are just so discouraged and so despondent and, you know, there's, there's almost like a piece of you is missing when you can't do what you love and, and you can't keep, you know, you, as an athlete, you know what it's like. You're so ambitious, so you always feel like you're striving to do something. Yeah. And then when it's taken away, it's really kind of difficult to accept and deal with. But there's a grieving process that goes on, you know, of of kind of losing that opportunity again. Um, and then, you know, I, I was I was lucky enough to have I am lucky enough to have a great support team around me. It's like okay, well, we, we're just gonna regroup here and 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 shoot for something else and you know at the time it was about getting healthy again and getting to a spot where I could be injury free and I knew that if I could stay injury free for for year on year on year um, and have some consistent training like anything you, you know if you've got a little bit of talent and you can train really hard it's 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 probably yeah you're gonna have some success and and that's that ended up eventually what um, what was happening. So Yeah, so what I take away from that is your ability to refocus quickly after the setback was key. So setting another goal straight away was really imperative to overcoming that disappointment. 100%. And when it, whether it was a goal, you know, for running or just a goal for, you know, like when I was 16 years old, I had the bone density of an 85-year-old woman. And so that wow. was pretty dire. Um, and so I had to have a real focus on my nutrition. I had to change mindsets around my nutrition and the way I perceived nutrition and running and um, the, get the whole energy balance thing right. And so that became my goal. Um, and then, you know, had a real, I had some pelvic instability problems, which is causing a few of my stress fractures around my pelvis and my back. And so, you know, gym work and strength work became, you know, the goal. And then once that happened, if I could get the running done without injuries, then that's when you start to win races. Can we break that out a little bit? Because I feel like there's probably a lot of good takeouts in there. You had nutrition, getting your body right, and then strength. Can we start with nutrition? What were the choices that you made to change yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, I had to start eating, eating properly. Um, As a a young girl, I I, kind of thought that I fell into the trap that many distance runners, especially female athletes, 
um, fall into that, you know, the thinner the better yeah. and the faster. And you don't and that, see many bulky long distance runners. It no, kind of comes exactly. to the territory. It does, it does. Um, but there's there's got to be there's a really fine line um, before it gets before you get dangerously, I guess, unhealthy. Um, and anybody starts to break down. And I guess that I, I, I kept on with that kind of train of thought and, and that pattern of behaviour of, of not fueling my body enough. So what did um, you do to switch out fuels? What did you start eating? Um, well, I just had to start eating more, oh, basically. Right. Okay, I had cool. to start eating more. I had to start eating um, more calcium, more dairy, you know, calcium-rich foods. I had to start eating meat because I was vegetarian at the time. Um, just a number of mindsets I had to transform in order to, to be able to be a better athlete and a stronger athlete. And, you know, I remember my husband saying, you know, you're eating potentially like a supermodel would eat, you know, (laughs) but you're running 150 Ks a week. Um, But it's common. Statistics, and you'd know better than me, but I've heard nine out of 10 elite sports women suffer from some form of eating disorder during their career. It's really common. Yeah, it's really, really common. common. And, I, and I mean, I'm quite open about it now, about the struggles that I had, and hopefully it's encouraging to other athletes that you can yeah. actually get through it. Um, it's just a matter of being, I guess, vulnerable enough to um, tell people that you that this is an area where you really need to improve in and that you're struggling with. And, you know, you might need to go and see a psychologist. You might need to see... Um, some get some people around you, nutritionists, and people that have studied the actual topic yeah. for, you know, four or five years of their life, um, yeah. rather than reading, you know, fitness mags or, or social media. You know, yeah, <laughs> and I, I think that can be really dangerous, especially in that those formative years when mm. you're a teenager for, you know, distance runners and, and gymnasts, girls in in individual sports where there is a lot of a lot of pressure and you don't necessarily have that team aspect to kind of feed off. Yeah. Um, the encouragement of them. It's all about what you're doing and th- it's based on, you know, the pressure is on you to perform. Um, so that's that's what I found when I was, you know, when I was a youngster. Fascinating, isn't it? And you look at it, like even on the flip side of it, rugby league players, other types of athletes, they're also eating for performance, not for health. Yeah, you know, I've spoken about it before. I, I was probably nearly a diabetic when I finished my football career because of the amount of carbohydrates and sugars I was eating to fuel my performance. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting now how the sports nutrition world has flipped and they're eating more fats in their diet and we were really ingrained to see fat as the devil. Mm. Um, it's amazing, isn't it, the change in sport, particularly endurance sports now where they are eating more fats. Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, you start burning fat at, mm. at 30 kilometres in a marathon, you start actually just burning fat. It, your body stops burning carbohydrate and you start burning fat. So if you haven't got any fat, that's why women are better um, at marathons than men comparatively in terms of we are closer, females are closer to the world record, um, into the men's world record than they are in any other event in in athletics. Um, And why is that? Percentage-wise, yeah, because they they burn fat at a more efficient rate than than men. Didn't know that. There you go. I didn't know that. It's got hacked. So your diet, um, obviously now you're pregnant, but when you change... Um, you know, down the track, I'm assuming you're going to move more towards marathons. Yeah. So will you see your diet then change again? Yeah, 100%. I mean, at the moment, um, I mean, not at the moment, but when I'm when I'm training for 5 and 10K for my Olympic events, um, I'd be running 120, 100, between 120 and 150 kilometres a wow. week. 
So marathon training will be up around 190, 200 kilometres a week. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of things that um, you need to be doing properly to, to not get injured and to not get sick as well. One of them is supplementing my diet. One of the things that I have is um, ubiquinol. Yeah, tell it's us about a, that. What's the... Um, Q10? Yeah, it's the active form of coenzyme Q10. Yep. And it, basically every cell in your body relies on, on that energy production and uh and yeah it helps me get the most um from the food that i eat the most energy from the food that i eat and uh yeah i swear swear by ubiquinol the other thing is um magnesium is really important in terms of cramping and you know if i don't take magnesium for longer than three nights in a row i I will get cramps like serious leg cramps well, yeah, it magnesium. makes it sound like I'm going into labour. <laughs> <laughs> no, but magnesium is responsible for over 300 bodily functions. Yeah. And, you know, 90-odd percent of people are deficient in magnesium. And you're going back to um, ubiquinol, a lot of people believe it's a much more effective source of delivery um, to the mitochondria of mm-hmm. Q10, which your body needs to convert oxygen and food um, and water yeah. um, into the powerhouse cells of our body. Yeah. So, you know, it's a great tip there for anybody out there if they're struggling with energy, go out and get some ubiquinol or some Q10 at, at worst and, um, you know, make sure that before you are going to bed at night, um, take some magnesium. That was my question, actually. Yeah, Is there a time that you take ubiquinol versus magnesium? I take them both together. Yep. And Just morning, night, or re- doesn't matter? remembering it, usually at night. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good tip. So then you said also earlier about you had to change your diet. Then you had to change the way you were training. Was it to put m- more muscle on? Like, what did you do to shift there? Yeah, so I had to. I had to start resistance training, and I was right. just just doing a lot of running. And I mean, that's that's pretty normal. As a you know, I was sixteen years old when I qualified for my first Olympics. So just doing, just doing a lot of running, not doing a whole lot of lifting in the gym. Um, but then once I hit my early twenties, I realized that I needed some lean muscle mass mm. to so, for some power. Is even in the 5,000 metres, you're still running, you know, upwards of 20 kilometres an hour, you know, under th- under three minute Ks for 5K. And so you, you need power, you need you need a finishing kick. And um, so you need, you know, you almost need a little bit of anaerobic capacity and a little bit of power and strength and a little bit of pop in your muscle. And yeah. you don't necessarily get that just from the p- repetitiveness of running. You need to be able to do plyometric things in the in the gym and plyometric exercises and um, more power kind of lifting. Can you break yeah. down plyometric? What's that? It's explosive types of jumping and, mm-hmm. and throwing right. and, you know, the, the really short, fast speed cycle of the muscle. But the interesting thing was, you know, she had 11 stress fractures. So, you know, the, the resistance training, I'm assuming, would have helped significantly with deloading the bones because yeah. the stronger the muscle. The- 100%. Yeah. And, and I mean, I worked with a strength coach um, locally to me, Jock Campbell. He's worked with a lot of athletes, a lot of um, cricketers and a couple of soccer players actually who played for Australia. And he gave me a specific program that, that was just for me. Um, and it was basically to help increase my bone density number one, and and to increase my my plyometric power so that I, would, yeah, right. I could have a, a finishing kick as much as I yeah. as much as I could. Yeah, well, it's one of the best things for people with bad knees out there, or you know, a bad back or, or whatnot. You know, particularly as we age, a lot of people move away from resistance style training, mm-hmm. and you know, it's been proven time and time again in research studies that um, to increase bone density, you need to actually put the bone under load, 
And the way to do that is put weights on your back or on your body and, you know, yeah. it'll make your knees feel much better. It sounds counterintuitive. Yeah. But, um, you know, the power's in, in the results, isn't it? It also means that, you know, every time you hit the ground, when the impact, um, the muscle can actually absorb some of the mm. impact. Mm. Uh, Whereas if the bone, if the bone is the only thing that's absorbing impact, it's like impact after impact where Whereas if there's the muscle and the bone are working together, it's like sleeping it's on a bed without the mattress. Exactly. Right. And the other, the other interesting hack I'm assuming you applied, we did in our sporting um, endeavours was when we had an injury, we used a, a treadmill called the Ultra G, which is something that's become more prevalent in in general society. So that um, Do you want to explain what the Ultra? I'm assuming did you utilise yeah, that to rehab so, your, your injuries? Yeah, I used my first one actually in 2008 when I was trying to rehab my foot. Um, before the Beijing Olympics, I had stress fracture and there was 12 weeks to go and it was this last-ditch effort to try and get it better. But um, yeah, the Ultra-G is a, a treadmill where you wear these special um, kind of wetsuit shorts and you zip in and it you put in to the machine how much you want to take off, how much weight you want to run with, percentage body weight you want to run with, and it fills up with air and it actually lifts you off the ground. Um, so that you can run yeah. with less body weight and you can run it, you know, whatever pace you like. Most of the treadmills were going up to 30, 30 plus kilometres an hour. Yeah. So you can run quite fast but with less body weight. So um, essentially it's not as much impact as, as if you were running out on the ground. right now going, how much for? <laughs> well, I, NASA it's about developed. It was developed by NASA, NASA. Yeah. Um, so that to give astronauts the, the feeling of weightlessness. Yeah, very And then, smart. you know, they've been using it for spinal cord injuries and, um, yeah, rehabilitating um, really serious um, injuries. Yeah, yeah, injuries over over in the States and, and now all over the world. Yeah, and if you, you know, you're, you are suffering from some sort of debilitative sort of injury, if you've got a good physio, a lot of physios now have access to these machines. So it's a good way to get your body moving without the load. So interesting how you use that to obviously come back and, you know, the thing I, I respect about Elise as well is the fact that um, when she was given the opportunity to represent Australia at her first Olympics, um, she took it all in a stride and she obviously, you probably didn't have the performance that you wanted. Yeah, at London, no. <laughs> I didn't. I mean, it was amazing. It was the most incredible experience and it was just, but the two Olympics that I've competed at were just completely different yeah, experiences. Yeah. Tell us because, about that. Yeah. I mean, well, London was just so much about just finally making it. Mm. Yeah. And it yeah. was just so emotional. And, you know, I remember walking to the starting line and just getting all of these flashbacks of images of, you know, moments that I'd have to, ha- like, I'd have to really fight for this moment. Mm. Um, and, you know, being on crutches and pool running and doing all this cross training and rehab and, you know, missing out three times and being measured for three previous Olympic uniforms and never being able to actually wear one mm. and line up. And here I was walking, I was like within a few metres of the starting line of, you know, my first event at the Olympics. And then I look up and I see my entire family up in like the You've already rafters. Won there, you? Oh, mate, yeah. I was a complete emotional wreck. Yeah. I was in no no um, shape to, to run 10,000 metres, but, you know, I did the best that I could. And I, I still ran quite respectively, but... Um, my coach and I actually probably five months from the games decided that, you know, we had this conversation. He said, if, if, if you miss out on this one, I, you know, you'll be quite, you'll, you'll just want to give up, won't you? And I'm like, I, I don't know, but I don't want to miss out. And he said, I think we should, 
we should play it really safe. And you just need this experience for the, for the rest of your running career. You yeah. need to have this Olympic experience. You need to be able to go and wear the uniform and enjoy competing for country and, and live this childhood dream. And then, you know, after that, I think that you'll really propel forward, but we need to make sure that you get there. And mm. so we're going to cut back on your training by about 30%. So I cut back on my mileage by about 30%. Um, of running training and I you know you can try and make it up through cross training but there's nothing quite like doing doing the running doing the actual sport um, the event so I wasn't as fit as I probably would have been had I done full training but I made the starting line and I was you know and made the finish line and um, I was happy with that and I competed in the the 5 and the 10k in London and then yeah, four years later, it was just all about business. Yeah. I just wanted to see how good I could be and at that level. And you were amazing. Like, obviously made two finals. Yeah. 5,000 metres, 10,000. Well, the 10,000 metres are straight final, so yeah. you can't, it's kind of cheap. Yeah, but still. But to do the thing, I obviously know about this because I'm a bit of a tragic with athletics growing up, you know, wanting to be a sprinter. Um, 40-second PB, mm. which, you know, is – Mind blowing, like, and I just love the growth mindset of um, the approach. You know, the first Olympics, Olympics, it was about that growth mindset. Let's just get there. Let's not seek perfection. And I mean, that's the biggest mistake a lot of people make in life. And we're here to help people is the fact that mm. you know, they get paralysed by this obsession with perfection, and understanding where you are, whatever your journey is in life, and accepting the fact that this is a victory in itself. Just getting to the Olympics, mm. and then setting yourself then up for this amazing experience, which was the second Olympics, yeah. where you got to then achieve. The performance of a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, and it was. It was amazing. I had, you know, the best build-up that I've ever had for a championship. We, we trained in the Californian mountains for a month beforehand and um, my husband and my little girl were there the whole time and uh, my coach and, and training partners and just had a really, really good build-up. And so I knew that I was ready. I was confident and we, you know, I trained harder than I'd ever had and my body was feeling great and strong and so I was confident that I was ready for a good one and but it was interesting I still had I still had um you know mental you had still had to mm. kind of fight mental challenges beforehand I remember being at the the warm-up track um before my first event the 10,000 meters in Rio and I remember being in the toilet cubicle and and thinking about what was out there <laughs> And I, I started to panic. Mm. I started to think, oh, what if I just stayed in the safety of this cubicle? Yeah. And and just like, you know, I was I was kind of thinking, what if I what if I go out there and and run the worst race of my life on the biggest stage of my career? What if I embarrass myself? What if what if what if? Mm -hmm. And then I just had to snap out of it and come back to you know come back to this moment of like, okay, I just need to just need to get through step by step. So I'm going to open the door. I'm going to go and wash my hands. I'm going to go and get my spikes. They're going to take us to the call room. They're going to give us our bib. They're going to line us up, walk us out onto the track. I'm going to put my foot on the starting line and when the gun goes, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other as fast as I can. And that it was only that mentality that actually got me to this place of just being in the moment. And then in the race, I was actually still um, able to be in the moment and I I ended up being, you know, I don't know if you've heard of it, but in a state of flow yeah. in the race because of that, because of that kind of challenge that I went through at the warm-up track and having to fight through that mentally and then 
you know, talking myself through that and then being in a state of flow. I actually finished the race not knowing if I'd run the correct amount of laps. Turned out that I had, <laughs> but I was just in such a, like a, a state of flow that, yeah. and yeah, it was, it was great. And I mean, I, I'd trained for four years for that moment and everything had been going perfectly, but it was interesting in that moment of pressure, mm. how quickly you can start to self-sabotage. Yeah, yeah. But I and think that applies to people listening to this. They might not be running 5,000 Ks, but it might be doing a very big speech to five important, you know, members of their board or something like that, or it could just yeah. be trying to win new business and they're in the cubicle freaking out about it. Mm -hmm. I really like how that applies because it's like a, you're a soloist. It's a mental challenge and mm -hmm. it sounds like you had some good steps there to get over it. Mm. What are some other ones that you use to get over mental hurdles because it's a you're in your own head you kind of got no one to talk to yeah um I think coming back to the process is so important and forgetting about the outcome or what the result might be is so crucial to actually getting the performance in the end anyway and going okay I know what I want out of this and I know the end result and I like that is success to me but now I need to to focus just on the very next step. And if you can do that, you'll forget about what the end result will be and you'll stop, I guess, the pressure will kind of lift and you'll start to enjoy the process. And as I said, you, you've got more chance of like reaching that state of flow where you just, you just start doing it and it just comes naturally. Love it. Yeah, great advice, isn't it? Focus on the process and the result will come. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. As an athlete, a lot of people don't realise, but um, sleep and recovery are probably just as important as the actual physical training. You got any tips or hacks um, on sleep? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I try and go to bed at the same time every night. I guess that's that's the only <laughs> real tip that I that I, um, so that I try that? and live by. Usually about ten. Yeah, wow, that's yeah. Late. late. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, a nine thirty right. guy. Okay. <laughs> Um, Adam, six o'clock is out because oh, the kids the are kids morning. Go out, yeah. When the kids go to bed, I go to bed. Yeah, I, I find it interesting speaking to high performers like yourself in the, the sense that you learn lessons. I, I think your personality suits you at that time. So to get to where you would have got to to start with, you had to be obsessive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then obviously as your career develops, you probably needed to relax more and along comes a baby. Yeah. So we ask people this, we talk about um, advice and mottos. What's the motto that you live by? Because- you had to have obviously motivate yourself pretty hard to get to where you are. I just think it's really simple and really cliche, but just never give up. I think if you want something and you're still really passionate about it, then, you know, you shouldn't give up on it just because of the challenges that you face or, you know, the um, the fear that you feel of failing again or, um, you know, I think you can you can really start to sabotage your yourself or your efforts when you start fearing um, failure um, after because you failed before but the truth is it doesn't always have to be your story and it hasn't always been my story even after missing three Olympics and failing three times um, it, it hasn't always been my story and probably made London even more special when you it got there really did it mm. absolutely did and um, you know I hope that I'll, I'll try and make another Olympics and just for fun, just because yeah. I, you know, it would be a challenge to me. Get another tracksuit. Yeah, why not? Hey. And I mean, it would be really special to to miss three and make three, yeah. you know. Um, but if I don't, that's cool. I'll just, I'll have a crack at it and I'm sure that I'll learn something in the process. And um, yeah, just, I think that, 
you can never stop learning when with whatever you're shooting for. And I'm definitely still learning about myself through this sport. And I think moving up to the marathon, I've been told that run, like marathon running is so much of a metaphor for life. Yep. And so I'm really looking forward to that that stage and that new challenge. And I mean, five and ten k running was challenging enough, but it, I think that forty two, yeah, but forty two point two, um, is yeah, will be challenging and just just I guess learning a little bit more about sport, the sport. Do you feel that um, people have got to understand too there's valuable lessons in setbacks for yourself? You know, from the setback come the great opportunity to start your own charity? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be working in Uganda now if I didn't. Uh, Tell people about that, sorry. but Yeah, yeah no, um, I met um, Ugandan runner Julius H. on over in Portland in 2008. So I was over there on this last ditch effort trying to um, rehab my stress fracture in my foot before the Beijing Olympics. And it was the third Olympics that I tried out for and I was pretty despondent and I remember meeting him um, in Portland in this house that international athletes could come and um, base from. We both had the same shoe sponsor at the time and, um, yeah, there was this house that athletes could come and, and, and live at and Julius was one of the athletes in the house and, you know, we just became really good friends um, straight away and he's, he just said... Um, he was asking about my foot and I, you know, I just said like, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. And, um, I, you know, this will be the third Olympics that I'll miss. And he said, if I told you my story, then your foot problem will become very small. <laughs> Pity party wouldn't yeah, be so Yeah, he big. really did. And, um, and he told me a story of being born into poverty in Northern Uganda and forced to be a child soldier at age 12 wow. and held at a rebel camp for three months and miraculously escaping and, um, he went on to become an incredible runner and he, he captained the Olympic, the Ugandan Olympic team at two Olympics, 1996 and the 2000 Olympics, and he competed in the 1500 metres. Um, and, yeah, he at the time he was working as a pacemaker in the US for some of the top American athletes but sending most of his wage home to care for 11 orphans that he'd found living underneath a, a bus in wow, the height of the great. war. And so his vision was to go back to Uganda and to um, to help people back on their feet after the war. The the war in Uganda lasted for over twenty years, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, he he wanted to go back and and help people back on their feet and start some community development projects. And my husband and I went to his wedding um, a few months later, and we saw the things that Julius had been telling us about and. And we felt that we had a responsibility to do something with what we'd seen. And so we started the Love Mercy Foundation. And yeah, we've been working for 10 years in Uganda. And it's just been such a privilege to stand alongside these people. They have given us so much more than we feel like we've given them in terms of just learning and being inspired by their resilience Mm. and what they've been through and the the atrocity of, of war that they've lived through and um, yeah, and it's just been, it's been a wild ride and, um, we're really privileged and, and grateful for, for the opportunity to stand alongside them and, um, yeah. Yeah, the program, tell people about it. So you, you essentially, you borrow seeds. Yeah, so we have three main proje- mm. projects. Um, one of them is our Sense for Seeds program, yeah. um, where, 
you a $30 donation will sponsor a family through the Sense for Seeds program and a family will receive 30 kilograms of seeds and whether it be rice or beans or sesame, they choose the crop. They go through an an agricultural training program um, on distribution day when they receive their loan. So trained agriculturalists will teach them how to get the most out of their crop. And usually they, they tend to harvest between 150 and 300 kilograms of food. So with that food, they can sell it at the marketplace and use it to send their own children to school. So it's actually taking away that older model of sponsoring individual children. Um, it's, it's actually empowering the entire family to create their own livelihood and, and, and do that themselves and pay for their own school fees and their own household items and their own, you know, other food items. And um, it's, it's empowering them to start other businesses with, you know, their own creative gifts and... Mm. Um, yeah, we have, we started Sense for Seeds with a hundred women in, in 2009. And this year we, we distributed 13,800 loans. Wow. Congratulations. Well done. Yeah. Thank you. That's incredible, isn't it? What a great model too, empowering people. Yeah. And at the end of the season, they bring back the loan so that we can pass it on f- to another family. Oh, so it's, that's so cool. it's, um, completely sustainable and that's how it's grown essentially, um, so quickly and, and so well and, yeah, it's, we, we have big plans. We want to take it into other areas of Africa where the soil is as fertile as it is in Uganda. Um, and it's just making an amazing difference to be able to, um, yeah, I guess empower the entire family rather than, you know, a Western family, I guess, sponsoring an individual yeah. child where, where there is still so much need for in so many areas of the world when there's an orphan situation. But actually empowering the, the mother and the father to, to create their own livelihood through the farming Might and prevent future orphanism. through the resources that they have. Mm. Um, yeah, it's so much more of a sustainable model. How do people get involved to support? Yeah, they can go to uh, our website, lovemercyfoundation.org and sign up to our newsletter and, and find out a bit more about what we do. You can donate there as well. We rely completely on, on public donations and, you know, foreign aid, at the moment in, in Australia is as low as it's ever been. Mm. Um, and we just believe that, you know, that's not the values of everyday Australians. We believe in, in I guess, giving a helping hand to people that are struggling. Speaking of giving, last final question for today. Um, if you had to give a book to somebody, what would it be? Uh, the Boy Who Runs. It's Julius's book. Wow. Yeah. It's his book about his life story and it's incredible. I'll make Easy. sure I get a copy. Yeah. It's lovemercyfoundation.org. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us and the fact we learned quite a few new hacks about how to run further. <laughs> and how to be more resilient and achieve your goals. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Health Hacker was created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Written and presented by Adam McDougall. Produced and presented by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. To listen to more episodes, search Health Hacker Podcast. Listen for free at podcast1australia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.